0: Good morning, it's gonna be warm today. You were smart to come at nine. On October 11th, 2009, an awkward, unattractive, almost 49-year-old woman walked out on a live stage in front of hundreds of people in a live audience and three very particular judges from a backwater town in Scotland. She stood there in a frumpy dress and looked to be the punchline of a joke. She was there to participate in a television contest, a talent competition called Britain's Got Talent. And the judges and the crowd were not impressed with what they saw and her introduction was cringeworthy at best. She professed a desire to be a professional singer, as well known as an incredibly famous British celebrity. And the camera panned out to the audience, where you saw people rolling their eyes and snickering, and the judges smirked, and they sat back, arms crossed, and with laughter in their voice, they bade her to continue. As she opened her mouth to begin singing the infamously difficult song, I Dreamed a Dream, from Les Miserables, she stunned everyone. Her performance left jaws dropped, it brought the audience to their feet, tears to people's eyes. Susan Boyle would go on to win the whole competition with what one of the judges said was the most surprising performance he had ever seen. As the old adage goes, looks can be deceiving. And the song that Susan sung, I Dreamed a Dream, is a song that is sung in the original musical based on the novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. It's a song sung by Fantine, a girl introduced to us in the book as a naive and yet beautiful young woman. She falls in love with a rich student in France where he seduces her and then abandons her with their illegitimate daughter. Fantine wants to be a good mother. She wants to take care of her daughter, and so she seeks out ways to support her. She takes a job and eventually gets fired when they find out she has a child out of wedlock, and then she begins to sell her hair and her teeth, anything that she can, eventually selling her own body. She ends up as a prostitute trying to take care of her child until it kills her. The subsequent musical and film adaptions along with the original novel are an example of one after another of people whose appearances are deceiving. Just as Susan's outward appearance deceived the judges and the crowd in Les Miserables, the law officer is really the villain, the thief, is really a hero, and the prostitute turns out to be more noble and good than both of them. And if this theme sounds familiar, it should, because our scripture today is another story about how looks can be deceiving, about not judging a book by its cover. The first time that I taught the story of Rahab and the spies, a story that makes us all squirm in our seats just a little bit, was to a group of fifth-grade girls in Sunday school. (laughs) I was sure by the time I got home, I was going to have more than my fair share of messages wanting to know why I was teaching their 10- and 11-year-old daughters what a prostitute was. And we can laugh because it's funny, but at the time, it was really troubling and difficult for me. What did I do? Did I teach the story as it was told? Did I teach the truth about who Rahab was? Or did I try to soften it? Did I try to adjust it to make it more palatable to our notions of who should be included in God's family and who a good woman is and who we are comfortable talking about? Many people like to stretch the definition of Rahab's profession, especially nowadays. We may have originally heard the story told on flannel graphs where she was an innkeeper, just minding her own home in between the city walls. We look for a twist on words for any way to get around what the author very plainly tells us in the text, which is that she was a prostitute. Because we are ashamed, or almost ashamed, of this woman and her story. Surely God could have found a better person to aid his spies. And yet she is one of only four women. Four women that are named by name in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew 1. And from her it is the one we get Obed. And then we get Boaz, who marries Ruth. She becomes and is part of the engrafted family of God in the history of Jesus. Clearly, God is not ashamed of her. And we shouldn't be either. See, part of our discomfort with this story and with her comes from our own notions of right and wrong. I'm going to guess that most of us in this room, unless I'm mistaken, tend to view prostitution as wrong. If not, my office is upstairs. Let's have a (laughs) talk. For centuries, we have seen it, though, as a moral failing, right? A moral failing particularly on behalf of the woman who is selling her body. Society and history has been much kinder to the men who tend to be doing the purchasing. You see, Victor Hugo would write in his novel, if the soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not the one who commits the sin, but the one who caused the darkness. And it's a question for us as we think of Rahab, because we don't know the circumstances that led her to the point in which we find her in the text. What we do know is that she had a family, a family that she loved very much. And we know that there is no mention of a husband, so she is extremely vulnerable, particularly in this Canaanite society. And so when we strip away all the moral judgment that we initially put on, what we find is a vulnerable woman trying her best to survive in a world that would prefer to kill her. Now, we can't be blamed for reading this with some judgment. In fact, the author wants us to read this text with some judgment. The problem is that over the centuries and through translations, we have missed who the judgment was supposed to be aimed at altogether. We start from a disadvantage because unless I'm mistaken, most of us no longer read scripture as a story, we don't start at the beginning and move to the end of the Hebrew Bible. And so we miss important backstory. I'm gonna guess, well, let's do it this way. You know how a TV show often starts at the beginning with a recap of what happened last week? Last week on Game of Thrones or last week on NCIS? You see, that's what we get at the beginning of Joshua 2 because the text notes the two spies are sent out of she-team. Now, if you haven't read Numbers lately, which I'm gonna guess, most of us in this room, the mention of she-team might not produce the internal groan or the sinking feeling low in your stomach that it's supposed to. But an original reader of this text would have thought, did you really have to bring that up? Things were just starting to go well. We just crossed the Jordan. We're moving into the promised land. Now I'm dreading what's going to happen. Because let's recap what happened back in Numbers. After annihilating two incredibly formidable kings, the kings of Shion and Og, the people that Rahab talks about in her speech that says are causing the people of Jericho such great fear and trembling the Israelites almost throw away their future in the promised land. The author of Number tells us that while staying in Shittim, the Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. They began to worship idols and participate in sacrifices. And the flagrant insults to God's honor and and the rebellion that happened against his commands in this moment should have made God's people Tremble, but it didn't. And so, during, in Numbers, we find God's anger burning against the Israelites with such force that He nearly puts an end to them in His zeal. So, when Shechem gets mentioned, just as the action of the book of Joshua is beginning, we might be fighting the urge to cover our faces and say, "I can't watch." The author author starts by mentioning this town, and before a single verse is complete, the spies are in Rahab's house. See the irony? The spies that were sent out from the camp end up in a prostitute's home in one sentence. No mention of completing the task that they were sent to do. The text does not say that they spied on anyone or acquired any information. It does tell us that people knew they were there, which makes me wonder how good of spies they really were. Not only do we miss the backstory when we read these texts, but one of the biggest downsides to reading a story that's been translated is that we miss out on the subtleties of language. We miss out on the, the wink-wink, nudge-nudge type of verbal cues that make for a great story when we read it in our native tongue. In her book, Vindicating the Vixens, Dr. Sandra Glan notes that Joshua chapter 2 is rife with doublespeak that we miss. It seems to be a perfectly PG meaning on the surface. And yet right below you find a great deal of innuendo and humor that is meant to cause you to think about who and what is being judged here. In his excellent work, Faith of the Outsider, Frank Anthony Spina enumerates on the author's word choices here and on the double meanings that they would have had to the people reading this text. First, the spies lodge in Rahab's house. The word lodge can be used in both asexual and a non-sexual manner in Hebrew, something like the difference between sleeping with a teddy bear and sleeping with your boss. <laughs> Same words, big difference. He goes on to say that when the king's men arrive, the writer uses the verb for enter. Where are the men who entered here? And the preposition unto, the men who came unto you, again, the double meaning is in play. In fact, more blatantly than before. In fact, Rahab's own name functions a lot like the word broad does in English. It indicates perhaps a slang term for a woman of questionable reputation. The text doesn't explicitly charge the spies with the same kind of sexual immorality that their comrades committed all those years ago in She-Team, but they want us to think that it's at least a possibility. Because we're meant to see the author making a point. On a holy mission, there seems to be a lot of very unholy things going on. And this is where we get the reminder, so much like the judges on Britain's Got Talent, not to judge a book by its cover. Because in all this body language, in all these jokes, in all the ribbing and the innuendo, Someone sees the spies and messengers are sent to Rahab's house to get them. And this is where we're supposed to be afraid. If we were watching an episode on TV, this is where the music would get low and ominous and we should be concerned because all of a sudden the two spies that are there to do the work of God to come into the promised land, their life hangs in the balance in the hands of a prostitute in Canaan. A woman of dubious reputation who stands to gain everything from turning them over and nothing from keeping them hidden. They are her enemy. They have come to Jericho to spy on the city because their mission is to destroy it and to wipe out everyone who lives there. She obviously needs the money, and having the king owe you a favor is a great ace to have up your sleeve. As the prostitute in the story, we expect her to have no moral righteousness. But rather than sell out our incompetent spy friends, she flips the script. She hides the men, she lies to the messengers who came to arrest them, sending them on a fool's errand, chasing shadows. And she begins what I like to think of as her I dreamed a dream moment. Because as she turns to the spies, what flows from her mouth is a thing of beauty and reverence. She announces knowledge of Yahweh and of his plans. She speaks of her fear and her wisdom in that. And she refers to God by a title this title, The Lord Your God is God. In heaven above and on earth below. She's one of only three people in all of Scripture to use this particular title for God, the others being Moses and Solomon. Not very bad company to keep. And what is even more admirable and overlooked is that she did all of this without being asked and with nothing promised in return. It's not until after she has saved the men's lives that she brings them her petition and she asks them to just spare her family in the coming attack. A plea to be remembered as one who chose to be faithful to Yahweh. And in response to her plea, the spies tell her, we won't be responsible for this pledge you've made us swear unless... When we come into your land, you tie this red woven cord in the window through which you've lowered us. Now gather your family, your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters into the house with you. Whoever goes outside your doors into the street will only have themselves to blame for their death. Not the nicest promise. But does this ring any bells? Do you think I've heard something like this before? You have. In fact, It perhaps reminds us of something that the Israelites themselves were told some 40-odd years ago in Egypt, when God came to Moses and he told him to tell his people to put the red blood of the lamb on their doorposts to gather their families inside and wait because death was going to pass through the land. In the same way, the red rope serves as a symbol of a Passover for Rahab and her family that will protect them from death and indicate their belonging in the family of God. Now, we don't get the end of her story in this chapter. In fact, again, like a TV show, we'd get a little next week on dot, 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 and we'd have to wait until episode seven episode six, episode seven, to get the end of her story where we find out that in fact she and her family are saved from the walls of Jericho before they fall. And they're rescued in fact by the same spies that she saved. They are brought into the Israelite family and we find out that the family lives with the people of God to this day. In our little epilogue, we get a note that she got married at some point, and had children. Children who would become just as much a part of the story of Israel as she would. Why do we bother to include her story and name? Why did the writers of Matthew, why did the writers of Joshua care? Because she is a reminder for all of us. She is a beacon that the family of God was never about exclusivity or ethnicity. The family of God always has and always will be made up of those who choose God above all else, above country, above friends, above fear, above their very life. And she serves as a reminder that the people of God are not perfect or pristine or faultless. That we are inept spies and body house owners, and we are warriors and we are leaders, and we are brave and we are cowards. It's a reminder that each of us plays a part in God's plan that is so much bigger than we could possibly imagine. Who would have ever imagined a Canaanite? prostitute would ever have been part of the family of Jesus. In Rahab, we see the best and the worst of ourselves, and we can see how God will use all of us, even the parts we are the most ashamed of for his glory. And we are reminded to never judge a book by a cover, even our own book. The story of Rahab is not a story about a prostitute and her redemption. It's a story of how God's family was formed one person at a time through love and sacrifice and his incredible imagination and grace. You and I have that same invitation and that same grace. And we are asked to take our part in the story just as she was. Amen.